Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. So glad you're able to join us. In this episode, finally a real glimmer of good news coming out of the war between Hamas and Israel. We'll tell you all about it. Are we finally rid of George Santos? The chair of the House Ethics Committee has ruled that he has no ethics. He's announced he's not running for re-election, but now there's yet another effort to expel him from the House. Does it make a difference? Will it make a difference? There's yet another climate study that says Earth is in trouble. Is it time to tell the truth and say politicians are not capable of doing anything about it? The Supreme Court has a new ethics code. Does it really mean anything? Let's get underway. A glimmer of hope coming from what is now a protracted struggle between Hamas and Israel. There apparently is a framework in place to allow for a five-day pause and, and this has already happened, I believe, to some extent, to allow premature babies to move to safety. Some, I believe, as far as Egypt. That's good news. That is absolutely good news. Now, the other side of the equation, or I guess if you want to call it bad news, the Israelis have released footage of what they say are tunnels underneath the uh, hospital, Al-Shifa, and they say that Hamas was using those tunnels as a means to access a command center from which they sent out all manner of mayhem, bombing, etc. Now, the people in the West, the media in the West, has been very careful to say that that footage has not been verified by anyone. Now, they've produced a few weapons as the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF, but no bodies, no people yet. And sometimes, you know, the cynicism in me and in some other people that work in media would lead one to say, well, on the one hand, there's good news in terms of those premature babies. On the other hand, the Israelis have to balance that out with some justification for the scorched earth policy they are using in Gaza and specifically at that Al-Shifa hospital. Now, it doesn't seem that Hamas is sitting there waiting for them to go into those tunnels. They've apparently deserted the hospital complex. Now, Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, I believe as well, have said that the Israeli claims about that hospital being a hub weren't exactly true. If you believe the footage that they uh, produced, it looks like it might be. One of the problems is that the IDF has yet to, in, until now anyway, made a successful effort to free more than 200 hostages. And that has led to some disquiet, even inside Israel. Meanwhile, destroyed buildings in the faces of Palestinian children with looks of desperation as they flee the onslaught are becoming features of Western news reports. There are published reports that there's even disquiet among some staffers of President Joe Biden's White House, even inside the State Department. And of course, there are marches continuing, demanding a ceasefire, and that, those marches are going on all over the world. As we enter Thanksgiving week in the U.S., the Israelis 
seemed willing to compromise, certainly not to accede to a ceasefire, however. They've made a few concessions, like allowing fuel and water into Al-Shifa Hospital. And they say they're helping people who were using the hospital as shelter to leave. But you're talking now about displacing and moving approximately 1.5 million people. That is a massive undertaking. It's the equivalent of saying to people in the Bronx, yo, you got to move to Staten Island or something. It's a huge number of people. It is a huge undertaking. And we don't yet know the extent to which the Israelis are actually facilitating that movement. Now, there are still, even though they've evacuated some premature babies, there's still some left in the hospital. And that, as they say in politics, is not a good look. Some of the war that's being fought, not on the battlefield, but on social media, is worth a separate look. Elon Musk, major domo of X, formerly known as Twitter, is facing major blowback after endorsing a clearly anti-Semitic post on his social media platform. What would possess Musk to endorse a post touting the great replacement theory where Jews are following a policy of, according to the post, quote, exact kind of dialectical hatred against whites that they claim to want to stop against or to stop people using against them? To which Musk replied, quoting, you have said the actual truth. The cascade of companies deserting X has become a river, not a stream. Apple, Paramount, and IBM are just a few. Lionsgate, the cinema company, the entertainment company, has also pulled back their ad dollars. Now, combined, these, these folks spend many millions of dollars on X, but no more, at least for the time being. It seems X has become ground zero for hate speech lately. As a result, maybe 50% of the platform's ad revenue is gone. IBM dropped their ads after Media Matters reported their ads were appearing next to pro-Nazi content on X. Musk responded by calling the advocacy group evil. So in other words, kill the messenger, ignore the message. That will not help obscure the fact that last month, he told his employees that X is now valued at $19 billion. He bought it at $44 billion. Nice work. If we step back for a minute, we see that corporate America is willing to fund almost anyone as long as their hands don't get dirty. Does anyone ask themselves why Elon Musk's nonsensical statements in the past have not been called out like this one, and it has nothing to do with anti-Semitism, nothing. It's not about that. It's about calling out the tolerance of anti-Semitism, racism, anti-Muslim or Islamophobia, all of that. It's doing that for dollars. Elon Musk didn't buy X just for laughs. He bought X because he thought he saw a way to make some good money. Now, he's a billionaire. That's why he does this kind of thing. He does it because he thinks he can. People with wealth, or at least the illusion of wealth, get a pass off times in America. Well, at least this time, 
the chickens are in fact coming home to roost. It's also time to look at support for Israel inside the corridors of power inside the U.S. A published report says staffers at the State Department and other government agencies, like the Agency for International Development, have been passing communications that are critical of the Biden administration's steadfast support of the Israeli effort to stamp out Hamas. The article, by a BBC News State Department correspondent, says the level of dissent produced in private, and in many cases anonymous correspondence, is said to be in the hundreds. The consensus is, and that's the consensus of the hundreds, not the overall consensus of government agencies, we should make that clear, is that President Biden should pressure Israel to enact an immediate ceasefire and to allow humanitarian aid to reach those in Gaza who need it. The thrust of that discontent is with America's unqualified support of the IDF's military operation. They did condemn did this, many of these missives, the October 7th Hamas attack. But one interesting fact is that they appear to be coming from younger people at many of these agencies. Now, I would say this to those younger people who are upset about the lack of a ceasefire. They would do well to remember that Hamas targeted and attacked a peaceful music concert populated largely by young people. It's true that the broken record, Israel has a right to defend itself, is wearing thin. But you have to keep in mind that there is a counterbalance to some of the stuff that we're hearing from younger people who are in government service, I might add. Now, I have to ask this question, and I talked about it the last time I did a podcast. Cannot Israel defend itself by rounding up Hamas fighters, not killing them, rounding them up, rounding up their leadership, and making them face Israeli justice, whatever that turns out to be? Now, those of you who know me know good and well I am not in favor of capital punishment of any kind. However, I'm not Israel. There may be Israeli justice that would involve executing people. The bottom line is, why cannot the Israelis, in their effort to stamp out Hamas, corral these folks, incarcerate them, and bring them to trial? I say, and I remain steadfast in this, killing Hamas fighters and creating a humanitarian crisis in Gaza actually creates more adherence to Hamas's river-to-the-sea nonsense. Capture them alive, put them on trial for specific crimes, and let the world, including the Palestinian people, know that Israel is, beyond anything else, just. That is, after all, what the Nuremberg trials at the end of World War II were all about. And just when you thought there was no hope, as I mentioned earlier, there are these details of a framework of a pause, not a ceasefire, but a pause, a five-day pause, and the release, a possible release of some women and child hostages. That's always good news. We can hope for longer than a five-day pause, maybe. Up next, is the political world finally rid of George Santos? There's yet another effort to expel him from the House, even after he announced he won't run for re-election. Yet guess who wants to get rid of him now? This is The Intersection.
You're listening to Mark Riley. It's the only podcast where the world makes sense. Welcome back to The Intersection. Last week, the House Ethics Committee issued a damning report on the transgressions of Congressman George Santos. The committee ruled his wrongdoing was substantial. Not long after the committee issued its report, Santos announced he would not run for re-election next year. After two previous unsuccessful attempts to expel him, the chair of the Ethics Committee, Michael Guest, a Republican from Mississippi, announced he was moving again to give Santos the boot. A vote could come as soon as just after Thanksgiving. It looks as though the political expediency of keeping him around to maintain that razor-thin majority Republicans in the House appears to have been protecting for so long. Now it looks like that expediency has vanished. Maybe some GOP members really didn't know how weirdly corrupt Santos' foolishness was. Spending campaign contributions on Botox, Ferragamo, and vacations? It's perplexing how he thought he'd get away with it. Well, actually, he hasn't. At least, not really. He faces 23 felony charges, federal felony charges that could put him away for decades. He also has a no-win choice that he has to make. Does he tough it out in the House and risk getting tossed, or does he resign? There are pluses and minuses on both sides of that equation. On the one hand, if he quits, he loses a $174,000 annual salary. How does he pay his legal bills, which must be substantial even by now? He doesn't even get to draw on a congressional pension which you have to serve at least five years to access. Now, and we need to be clear about this, the bar for expulsion from the House is high. Two-thirds of that body would have to vote in favor. It now seems that many on both sides of the aisle, I might add, who opposed expelling him on the basis of setting a precedent have changed their minds. That would be due, I think, to the Ethics Committee report. Will it be enough to show George Santos the door? I think, and this is just a personal opinion, I think it will. If expelled, Santos would only be the sixth representative in the history of the House of Representatives to be expelled. Whatever happens, it will be over and done, I believe, quite quickly. And speaking of ethics, or lack of saying, the Supreme Court now has a code of ethics. You mean they didn't have one before? Uh, no, they didn't. Anyway, this code is as a direct result of the public light shown on, among others, Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito Jr. Both accepted gifts from people seeking to curry favor with the high court. The code, sadly, doesn't have too many teeth to it. What good is a code that sets guardrails around ethical behavior if there's little or no mechanism for enforcement? What could I be talking about? How about Thomas's wife working to overturn the 2020 election? How about his accepting and not disclosing luxury trips? And then there's Alito's undisclosed trip to an Alaska fishing lodge courtesy of a hedge fund tycoon with business before the high court. 
Far be it from the general public to expect the nine justices of the highest court in the land to be scrupulous in their dealings, both public and private. Now that I think of it, why should anyone expect the court to draft a code of ethics that relies on the very people it's supposed to police? That's what this code of ethics, in fact, does. Yes, there are a few holes plugged, but all in all, it's a self-serving document that reveals the contempt the court feels for the public they serve. They could have, as columnist Ruth Marcus writes in the Washington Post, impaneled a group of respected jurists to hear complaints regarding potential ethics violations. Or they could have appointed an inspector general to do the same thing. Apparently, these things are too much for the Supreme Court. They'd rather watch public perception of their integrity melt away like a spring thaw. And that, of course, is too bad. And finally, there's a new climate study out. It's got good news and bad news. Which do you want to hear first? This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, you're here with Mark Riley. It's the voice that you know and the information you can trust. Welcome back to The Intersection. I've been nattering on about climate change like what they used to call a broken record over and over and over again. That's because I believe we owe it to the future generations to come to do something radical to make our planet more habitable. Now the U.S. government has released its fifth national climate accession. I'm sorry, its fifth national climate assessment. You may not have heard about the fourth because Donald Trump kind of had it released, I think it was like the day after Thanksgiving when everybody was in Black Friday fever. As you might expect, this fifth one is not pretty. Let's start with the fact that 2023 will be the hottest year on record. Every aspect of American life is or will shortly be affected by climate change in the near, not the far, future. Despite the fact that feckless politicians haven't been paying attention, there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Believe it or not, greenhouse gas emissions peaked way back in 2007 and have had and have been falling ever since. That's because we've been using more gas than coal to create electricity. Beyond that, though, is this immutable fact. The future of climate change is entirely up to us. That leads to a second fact. If the nation's climate experts say it's on us, we should believe them and adjust our behavior accordingly. For those who say the short-term costs of some of the changes we must make, and they say it's too expensive, the assessment says, think again. Cutting greenhouse gas emissions will have the effect of increasing life expectancy and numerous other economic benefits. The losers? Fossil fuel companies who have spent decades and a lot of money trying to protect their turf. I've said this before, and this climate assessment bears it out. We can no longer, no longer afford to act as though somebody else has the responsibility to fix our environment. Once and for all, it's totally on us. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley. And music 
is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.